I'm Avery Arden of the Rock Candy Podcast Network, and you're listening to Blessed Are the Binary Breakers, a multi-faith podcast of transgender stories. much joy and some moments of rest for each of you. For me, these final weeks of 2022 have been even more chaotic than usual. My wife Leah and I are officially moved into a new home in the same area as before, but free of the landlord who put us through some major nonsense, let me tell you. And while I am so grateful to have this new home and super excited about what the new year will bring, I also regret that Advent is nearly over and I barely took the time to just be with the divine, as I normally try to do during this season. Alas, God willing, there will be future Advents, future chances. In the meantime, what I bring to you now is a short story I wrote last year for an anthology titled Reconstructing Christmas, put out by Squirrel House Publishing. I'll make sure to include a link in the show notes to where you can purchase the full anthology, which is rich with essays, poetry, stories, and artwork by LGBTQ Christians. My story for this book centers around a non-binary college student who has just arrived home for the holidays and who has steeled themselves to do something bold and terrifying. It's their relationship with Mary, as in the biblical figure and mother of Jesus, that emboldens them to do what they fear to do. While this character's experience is quite different from my own in many ways, that Catholic connection to Mary is very much inspired by my own. Mary has been in my corner all my life, nudging me gently but firmly towards deeper understandings of what it means to follow her queer son. Telling this fictional story about Joe's encounter with the Mother of God let me express some of my own feelings about Mary, whom I have come to see as a patron saint of queer and particularly trans folk. As a child, I mostly fell for depictions of Mary the sweet and submissive, meek and mild, and certainly she does identify herself as God's servant, but hers is not a passive submission, an unquestioning obedience. Moreover, the Catholic Church of my youth raised Mary on a pedestal of perfect purity, skipping over the fact that the people of her own day likely saw her as sexually indecent. In this way, Mary's own experiences with disgrace and her defiance in the face of social norms resonate with many LGBTQA narratives. We only get glimpses of Mary throughout the Gospels, but these glimpses combine into an image of a woman with guts, a woman with things to say, unafraid of impropriety and eager for empire's end. The nativity story we retell each Advent season depicts a girl who dares ask questions of a divine messenger. How can this be, since I have not known a man? making sure she has all the details before agreeing with the angel's message. Let it happen to me according to your word. 
who exclaims her joy that through God, the pregnancy the world calls shameful will come to be praised across the ages. See Luke chapter 1. Fast forwarding several decades, John 2's story of the wedding at Cana depicts a mother telling her adult son what to do in a culture where adult sons had legal authority over their mothers. Even when Jesus hesitates, Mary believes in his ability to fill a need they both observe, and she helps him kickstart his ministry with the miracle of a rollicking good party. Years later, when most of Jesus' male followers flee in fear of legal consequences, Mary stands steadfast at the foot of her son's cross. See John chapter 19. After his ascension into heaven, she becomes a beloved matriarch among his apostles. Acts chapter 1. Then there are the various apparitions of Mary that, according to Catholic tradition, have taken place over the centuries all across the world. Almost always, Mary appears to persons whom society overlooks or even despises, including Bernadette, a poor and sickly French shepherdess, Adele Brice, a young Belgian immigrant in Wisconsin, 18th century Vietnamese villagers hiding out from their persecutors in the jungle, and my personal favorite, Juan Diego, a Chichimec peasant in Mexico. Venerated as Our Lady of Guadalupe, Mary appeared to Juan Diego several times in December 1531 with instructions to build a shrine on the hill where he saw her. From this shrine, she told him she would extend her mercy and protection to all the inhabitants on this land and all the rest who love me, listen there to their lamentations, and remedy all their miseries, afflictions, and sorrows quote from the English translation of the Nikan Mopoja. However, the Spanish bishop to whom Juan Diego relayed this request refused to believe this indigenous peasant without proof. After all, why would the mother of God, queen of heaven, deign to appear to a lowly Indian? Mary provided that proof in the form of roses blooming out of season and her own image printed on Juan Diego's tilma, or cloak. To this day, around 15 million pilgrims visit the chapel where this tilma is displayed every single year. What I love most about Our Lady of Guadalupe is that she appeared to Juan Diego not in the garb of the Spanish colonizers, but in symbolically rich Aztec apparel and with brown skin and dark hair. What is more, she spoke to him in his native Nahuatl, a language deemed barbaric and contemptible by the Spanish settlers. Mary, the Palestinian Jew, who lived under Roman occupation, extended her solidarity to the indigenous peoples who likewise endured oppression. She called Juan Diego by the loving diminutive Juanito, Juan Dieguito, and declared herself his mother. After facing the bishop's disbelief, Juan Diego implored Mary to entrust the delivery of your message to someone of importance, well-known, respected, and esteemed, so that they believe in him. Because I am a nobody. I am a small rope, a tiny ladder, a tail end, a leaf. Juan Diego knew that in the eyes of the world he was worthless. Perhaps he internalized that idea and even believed it about himself. But Mary's response makes clear her preference for the nobodies of the world and affirms Juan Diego's dignity and worth. Hark, my son the least, 
You must understand that I have many servants and messengers, but it is of precise detail that you yourself solicit and assist, and that through your mediation my wish be complied. Mary insists that it must be this Chichimec peasant, denigrated and overlooked, who carries her message. No one else will do. This Mary, Mary the defiant, Mary the outspoken, Mary of the oppressed and overlooked, is the Mary who has mothered me through times of complacency and turmoil. She has challenged me when my thoughts have mirrored the status quo. She has let me cry on her shoulder when the status quo threatened to smother me. When I was first discovering my own queerness, before I felt confident enough to bring my discoveries to the God who made me that way in the first place, it was to Mary that I turned. Her rejection would have shattered me. But, as a traditional Catholic prayer, the Memorare, says of Mary, Never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Mary gathered me up and showed me how my queerness does not cut me off from her or the God she bore and nursed and raised. Both Mary and her son identify so intimately with those whom the world hates that they count themselves as one of us. That includes us queer folk. Thus my queerness actually provides me with a unique connection to my mother Mary and her son, my God. Joe and Our Lady Defiant by Avery Arden Content warning for this story. Homophobia and transphobia, mostly unintentional dead naming and misgendering, coming out to parents with less than positive reactions. However, the story also includes loving queer relationships, affirmation from faith figures, and hope for future acceptance. You sure you're not forgetting anything on that list of yours? Medical records, birth certificate, check and check. Baby photos, rosaries, old diaries I can read to unlock more of your angsty teen backstory. That got a laugh out of them, despite everything. Yes, babe, it's all there. But if you secretly read those diaries, I'll replace all your sapphic romance novels with hetero trash. We'll read them together. Late at night while stoned out of our minds. Perfect. Ellie leaned across the console to kiss her partner before they opened the passenger side door. You positive you don't want me to come with you, or at least drop you off closer? Joe nodded. They think Hannah's dropping me off, so they can't see your car. Plus, this is something I have to do alone. Well, not alone alone, they thought, reflexively reaching down to pat their jacket pocket. Okay, I'll be right here, just a phone call or mad dash away. I know. Thanks, El. Joe climbed out, closed the door behind them, made their way to the trunk. From the messy mountain of worn duffels and bulging trash bags, they grabbed the one nicish bag, a wheeled suitcase. 
Lifting it from the pile was no trouble, light as it was. As they started to head off, the whirring of a car window sliding down caused them to glance back. Their girlfriend leaned out the driver's side window, dark curls set alight by the setting sun behind her. Her smile didn't quite smooth out the worry, wrinkling her brow as she called, Your getaway car awaits, my love. Throat suddenly too dry to answer, Joe lifted one arm in half-acknowledgement, half-wave, and continued down the sidewalk, suitcase rolling behind them. I could come in with you. You and your brother have already done enough, Zipporah. More than enough. Zipporah grinned that crooked grin of hers. You sure do owe us big time. Her tone shifted from joking to earnest. Still, I wouldn't abandon you for this part, if you need me. I'm good, Zip. I'm calm. Remember what that angel told me? With God, all things are possible. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly would require a miracle for a girl's parents to take her premarital pregnancy well. However they take it, all will turn out for good. The two girls embraced. When they pulled apart, Zipporah held on to the other girl's arms, gazing into her eyes. See you soon. If it doesn't go as you hope, head over tonight. I'll have fig cakes waiting. You're the best, Zip. I know, Zipporah replied with a wink and turned to go. Don't forget, Aram heads out right at dawn. Be ready. I will be. And you're sure that cousin of yours won't mind you showing up unannounced. Elizabeth's face, the laugh lines crinkling around her eyes, arose in Miriam's mind. She could almost feel the tight hug she knew her cousin would wrap her in the second she arrived, surprise or not. Oh, yes, she said. She's always overjoyed to see me. Despite the ache in their gut that had been growing for the last hour of their drive, Joe couldn't help a small grin as they passed the Long's house. Their grass was still the patchiest in all the neighborhood, just like Joe remembered. A couple toy guns lay abandoned among the brown leaves dotting the yard, missed by whatever perfunctory raking had taken place back in November. The tricycle Joe's memory conjured up, faded green with rusty handlebars and one pedal missing, had been replaced with an adult-sized bike. Also faded green, but less rusty and with no missing parts, leaning haphazardly against the closed garage door. Wonder what they'll think, Joe mused. Would Ms. Long have let me babysit her kids all those summer days if she'd known? No, don't think about that. Joe shook their head vigorously, feeling their short brown hair shake around their ears. The hand not pulling the suitcase returned to their jacket pocket, fidgeted with the zipper. A sudden, frankly overdramatic gasp up ahead interrupted Joe's tangled thoughts. It was followed by an exclaimed name that might as well have been a sniper's bullet. Jennifer! Jen, is that really you? Ugh. Jerking their gaze away from the long kids, or teens now, Joe supposed, bike, Joe looked up for the source of the voice calling out to them, though not to them, really. Ugh. Mrs. Rudyard. Just as they'd feared. 
The middle-aged woman stood at the top of the steps to her front door, much of which was obscured by the gargantuan wreath the Rudyards hung there every year. One perfectly manicured hand shielded her eyes from the sun setting behind Joe's head. The other clutched a Michael Kors purse to her middle. Upon catching Joe's eyes, her lips parted in a wide smile, showcasing perfectly white teeth. She hurried down the steps, down past the blow-up nativity taking up a big chunk of yard, and towards the curb as fast as her worryingly high heels would allow. Joe would have loved to turn tail and run, but this lady was now right smack in between them and their destination. No way but through, they thought, squaring their shoulders. Hey, Mrs. Rudyard, they said resignedly as they slowed to a halt. How's it going? Come here, let me get a look at you, girly. Mrs. Rudyard spread her arms wide as if to receive Joe in a hug, though Joe remained exactly where they were. She looked Joe up and down so intensely that Joe glanced down at their own body just to make sure, yep, still wearing the jacket, the skinny jeans with the scuffed hems, the grubby converse, they weren't really stripped naked under that appraising stare. Ooh, honey, your hair, it's so very short. Joe had no clue how to respond to that statement. Gee, how astute of you. But just as they remembered, Mrs. Rudyard didn't need a particularly engaged conversation partner to keep talking. I guess short hair on girls is somewhat in these days, especially among the, what do you call yourselves, hipsters. She tittered out that high-pitched little laugh of hers, as if she'd said something witty. Her eyes alighted on Joe's suitcase. I suppose you just got back in town for Christmas. Welcome home, sweetheart, she continued, hardly pausing for breath, let alone an answer. Thanks, Joe said tiredly. Then, scrambling to get the words out before the woman could continue, Well, my parents are expecting me, so... Yes, yes, of course. I was just on my way to Bible study anyway. At the Baptist church, of course. I know your family is... Catholic, which is nice. It was incredible, really, how much condescension she could pack into a sentence. It took all Joe's self-control not to roll their eyes as they got walking again. They settled for a happy holidays, Ms. Rudyard, thrown over their shoulder as they left the woman and her ludicrous nativity scene behind. Uh Uh-huh, well, yes, thank you, they heard the woman flounder behind them. Tell your folks I say hi. The rest of the yards rolled by without incident. Bradley's? Shaw's? No, wait, they'd moved out a year or two ago. Joe had no clue who lived there now. Henson's? Detweiler's? As their own house neared, Joe could swear the rumbling of the suitcase wheels got louder and louder till it reached a fever pitch filling their mind. Their palms suddenly clammy despite the mid-December chill, the suitcase handle almost slipped from their fingers. They rearranged their grip, squeezed the handle tighter. Fine. They were fine. It was going to be fine. Or at least, it would be over soon, anyway. Their free hand moved to their pocket once again, and this time they unzipped it, reached in, wrapped their fingers around the carved wood, and felt a little calmer. 
They rolled their suitcase up their own driveway, approached their own front door with its normal-sized wreath, take note, Rudyards, and yellow light spilling out from behind it. Their fingers still curled around the figure in their pocket, they continued forward, reached the front porch stairs, paused to collapse the handle back down into the suitcase, lifted the weightless case up the two porch steps, reached for the doorknob. Paused again. My hair. Remembering Mrs. Rudyard's comment, Joe yanked their hood up over their head. Then they reached for the doorknob once more. It didn't turn to let them in. Locked. As she stepped inside, she pulled off her hood, letting her dark ringlets spill out with a sigh. Mother, father, I'm home, she called. Dearest of daughters, pupil of my eye. She smiled at her father's voice, and her smile grew as his beard, long gone white but still thick and full, tickled her cheek when he kissed it. How was synagogue? How are Aaron's children doing? Taking a deep breath, Joe knocked. Not ten seconds passed before a silhouette blocked some of the light spilling from behind the wreath, before the click of the lock, before the door was pulled open and Joe's mom was flinging her arms around them. Jenny, baby, welcome home. Hey, mom, Joe mumbled into the soft gray of their mom's cashmere shoulder. Come in, come in, it's freezing out here. Mom pulled Joe through the doorway. Then she yelled over her shoulder, Simon, Jenny's home. Joe towed off their converse and used a foot to push them towards the shoe rack as their dad's footsteps tromped down the stairs. Sweetheart, he exclaimed, and pulled Joe into a hug even tighter than Mom's had been. Hi, Daddy. Sorry I had the door locked, honey, their mom was saying as she closed the front door. I didn't hear Hannah's car. Oh, yeah, um... I got dropped off at the end of the street, wanted to stretch my legs. It wasn't a lie, just a half-truth. How is Hannah? How was the trip? Dad asked as he released Joe from the crushing hug. Oh, we heard the news, their mom interrupted before Joe could come up with something. It's so exciting. And weren't those engagement photos just beautiful? What's her beau's name again? Um... Joe racked their brain for that Facebook post they'd scrolled past last month. Dave, wasn't it? Their dad answered, thankfully. Nice boy from up in Tennessee. That's right, Dave! Mom exclaimed, clapping her hands together. I'm so darn happy for them both. Speaking of, you don't have a happy surprise for us, I suppose. A boyfriend of your own? God, no. Joe hadn't meant it to come out so curt and, well, definitive, but there it was. Jennifer, Mom warned, and Joe tried not to wince at both the name and the tone. Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain under my roof. Right, right. Hey, why are we standing here barely inside the house? Dad cut in quickly. Ginny, let's get you to the kitchen and get some good home cooking in you. Oh, yes, Daddy made your favorite. Their mom chimed in, relieved to leave the tense moment behind. It's in the warming drawer waiting for you. Thanks, Daddy. That's real nice of you, Joe said and tried to mean it. I'm just gonna take my bag upstairs first, use the bathroom. 
I'll get your bag, Dad offered, reaching for the suitcase. No. Again, they didn't mean to be so curt. Uh, that's okay, Daddy. I got it. They lifted the suitcase, trying to make out like it was heavier than it was, and started to carry it up the stairs. See y'all in a minute. I expect the hood to be down at the table, sweetie, their mom called after them. The door to Joe's bedroom was open, the ceiling light on. They tried not to bristle at that. Mom had probably just gone in to freshen up the sheets or whatever. Still, first thing they did after plopping the suitcase down on the bed was to pull open the dresser's bottom drawer, dig around in the jumble of old clothes, mostly t-shirts from grade school theater and writing clubs, and pull out the shoebox buried beneath. Without opening the lid, they lifted the box up to eye level and tilted till they spied... Yes, there it was. The strand of hair was still in place, undisturbed. Breathing a sigh of relief, they deposited the shoebox beside their suitcase and opened it. The strand of hair tumbled from where they had carefully tucked it a few years back just under the lid. Joe wouldn't need that security measure to alert them to any parental snooping anymore. They pulled out one of the notebooks inside, smiling softly at the big, bold, top secret, keep out message their preteen self had scrawled with a jumbo sharpie. Joe rifled through the pages, stopped at a random point, and scanned the page idly. Dear Diary, I want to effing die. Yep, they'd actually censored the word like it was a comic strip as if that would have kept mom from grounding them for using it if she'd seen. My boobs are coming in faster and faster and mom says I need to start wearing a bra. Yuck! Why can't my body just stay the same forever? Puberty is such BS. Also, if a boy snaps my bra strap, I'll snap his fingers in half. God, I was a drama king, Joe murmured. Ellie was going to get such a kick out of reading these. Still, their past self had been right about bras. Yuck, indeed. Joe's fingers absently tapped along their chest, safely smushed down beneath their jacket and t-shirt by the binder Ellie had gotten them for their birthday. Enough of that. They had work to do. Joe shut the notebook and tossed it back in with the others. Then they zipped open the suitcase, threw open the fabric lid in one fluid motion, revealing its interior empty. In went the shoebox of diaries. Then some of the old t-shirts, just for nostalgia's sake. Joe pulled out their phone and headed to the notes app, but not before they saw Ellie had texted them a minute ago. You got this, babe, followed by about 10,000 emojis. Thanks, they typed back, adding a heart. This might take longer than expected. Daddy made dinner. They watched the dot 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 as their girlfriend typed a response, taking small comfort just imagining Ellie's stout fingers with their chipped purple nail polish tapping out her response. That's fine. I'll wait however long you need. A kissy face emoji and a whole parade of hearts followed. Joe left the texting app and headed to the notes app. Then, using the list they'd put together to remind them what they needed, they moved around their childhood bedroom, grabbing stuff to add to the growing mess inside the suitcase. There really wasn't that much. Most of the stuff they wanted to keep was already safe in the apartment they shared with Ellie and Gabe, just a few minutes from campus. Last on the list, rosaries. Where had Pasco put those? 
Oh, right. They pulled open their old underwear drawer, which was mostly empty besides a few sad, crumpled socks missing their match, plus a couple dust bunnies. But there in the corner was that coin purse they'd won in an elementary school funfair, God, so many years ago. It was the round kind with the metal clasp at the top that you snap open and closed. They snapped it open. Peering in, they sort of felt like they'd just pried open an oyster to reveal a miraculous multitude of pearls. And every pearl a prayer, they thought, reaching fingers in to fish one out, the one with the purple glass beads they'd inherited from a great aunt they'd never met. As they pulled it out, two other rosaries tried to come with it, tangled together as they all were. Sorry, Ma, I'll untangle those later, when I'm free of this place. Joe promised. Snapping the little purse shut again and tucking it among the t-shirts, filling half the suitcase, Joe reached into their jacket pocket once more. This time, when their fingers curled around the item inside, they pulled it out. This is it, huh, Ma? They said to the olive wood statuette in their palm. Showtime. The wooden figure didn't respond, obviously, but Joe always felt like those carved eyes had depth and warmth behind them a window to the woman the figure represented. Joe thought back to the day Gabe had pressed her into Joe's hand. Here, based on that dream of yours. He'd brushed off Joe's awe and fervent thanks. You know my process, dude. I can't hardly take credit. It's just what called out to me from the wood. Gabe wasn't even a Christian. Kinda hated Christianity's guts, which, fair. He was agnostic, currently exploring paganism and witchcraft and literally anything but Christianity, yet he'd taken the time to whittle the mother of God for a friend. For Joe. Joe's thumb traced the folds of the wooden figure's robes. You'll be with me for this, won't you, Ma? No voice had to reverberate from the heavens, let alone from a piece of wood, for Joe to know in the very core of their being what the answer was. Yes. Yes. Forever. Yes. Tucking the statue of Mary back in their pocket, Joe zipped up their suitcase and pulled it from the bed, heavier now than it had been, but not too bad, and carried it to the door. Down the stairs they went, taking care not to bang the bag against the walls. They deposited it right at the foot of the stairs, then made their way into the kitchen, where they could hear their parents bustling about. On the way, they took a moment to regard the Christmas tree in all its shining splendor. The neatly spaced ornaments, the glittering tinsel, and, to top it all, the angel passed down across generations on their dad's side. Its white robes were somewhat yellowed with age, but it still managed to look majestic from its perch among pine branches. Joe imagined it was a good bit blonder than any angel who would have visited first-century Palestine. Or maybe that's why all the angels had to open with Be Not Afraid. Hey, I know I'm as pasty as some of the Romans oppressing your people, but don't freak out. But they were postponing the inevitable. It was time to face the music. The first words out of their mom's mouth when they entered the kitchen were in chipper sing-song. Honey hood. Oh, right. Bracing themselves, Joe pulled their hood down. Their mother's smile slipped from her face and shattered on the floor. Joe nearly expected her to clap her hands to her mouth like a movie character, so dramatic was her dismay. Oh, Jen, 
It's as short as a man's. That's the point. Yeah, listen. Did the hairdresser mess it up? You know I tell you not to be frugal when it comes to haircuts. It's worth the extra money for a competent stylist. No, Mom, I asked for this cut. Joe swallowed around the lump threatening to plug up their throat. It's... No. No, no, they couldn't do this. Not with Dad's hands as frozen as his expression, ladle midway between crock-pot and half-filled bowls of chili. It's hipster. Are you really channeling Mrs. Rudyard right now? Wow. Things thawed out. Joe's dad continued ladling chili, and Joe's mom beckoned Joe to sit down at their usual place at the table. You know, I kinda like it. Dad said as he brought the first steaming bowl to the table and placed it in front of Joe. It suits you. He reached out and ruffled the short hair. Joe only started slightly, not enough for their parents to notice. Thanks, Daddy, they said, and halfway meant it. Just wait till you know, till you really know. Joe said nothing more for the first few minutes of dinner, mindlessly moving their spoon from bowl to mouth as their mom filled them in on all the neighborhood gossip. They offered a grunt or uh-huh whenever Mom paused expectantly. Huh? Sorry, what? Joe coughed, suddenly realizing both their parents were staring at them, as if waiting for something. I asked, do you know who else is back in town for Christmas, sweetie? Mom said. Oh, uh, no. Jackson Everett. You remember him? You know I always said, and his mother always agreed that the two of you would make the sweetest couple. Mom, Joe's spoon clattering into their now nearly empty bowl made them jump. They hadn't even noticed they dropped it. Their mom jumped too while their dad just raised his eyebrows. Mom, Daddy, I need to talk to you. Mother, Father, I have something to share with you, the best news that has come to our people in generations. But I worry you will hear it as catastrophe. Anna's hand stilled in her lap. Tell it to us, Miriam, and if it is of God, we will rejoice with you. Joachim remained silent, but he regarded his daughter carefully. Miriam sat down next to her mother, drew her mother's hand to herself. Listen. An angel of God came to me, and the Spirit of God overshadowed me. An angel of the Lord visited my daughter, her father exclaimed, clapping his hands together and lifting his face heavenward. Daughter, this is joyous news. Blessed be the day of your birth, my girl. Blessed be the Most High who blessed us with you. Her mother squeezed her hand and joined in her husband's exultation. Blessed be the name of the Lord who heard our prayers, who opened my womb in my old age in order to bring us joy. Miriam's eyes shone as she returned Anna's squeeze. I so hoped you would understand, she said. Blessed be the spirit who defies expectation, who opened my womb that the lowliest of humankind might bear the very Son of God. Amen, amen, I... What? My child? Joachim moved his gaze from the ceiling to return it to his daughter. Your womb? I need you to listen. Really listen. Dad cleared his throat and said, Of course, Jenny. We're listening. That's the first thing. I'm not that name anymore. Jenny. 
or Jennifer, or Jen. Saying those names felt like coughing up sharp rocks. I'm... Their true name stuck in their throat. They couldn't, they couldn't say it. They couldn't say any of this. They... Words from their dream rose up over the panic in their mind, washed over the chaos in soothing waves. To face the world's disgrace is to follow in my footsteps. Then Ellie's voice, too. You got this, babe. Joe looked towards the Christmas tree again, to the angel at its peak. It regarded them with its vague expression. No judgment, no expectation. It simply bore witness, far beyond any pomp and circumstance so human as coming out. From its otherworldly vantage point, the momentous shrank down to the minor. No matter what happened in this kitchen, the world would keep turning. Eon would slip into Eon as unshaken angels watched. Joe took a deep breath. Keeping their eyes on the angels, they spoke. My name is Joe now, and I'm not a girl. The person I'm dating is, though. A girl, I mean. Or, or like, a woman. You know, like my age. A, uh, another college student. Real eloquent, Joe. All that practicing in the mirror all week totally paid off. Joe forced themselves to move their gaze to the two faces across from them. Their parents were staring with expressions so shocked that, honestly, it would have been hilarious in any other situation. As it was, Joe couldn't bear to keep seeing them, so they looked down at their bowl as they continued hurriedly, And before you bring up religion, I want to let you know I had this dream or like a vision thing where Mary told me it's okay, that being queer is okay, and maybe even holy. So you don't have to be scared for my immortal soul or whatever. I'm still Christian and, yeah, God's chill with it, I think. Silence screamed into the room and filled it full. Silence that scraped like sandpaper across the ears. Joe kept staring into their bowl, too scared to look up at their parents. Sorry, Ma. I'm not as brave as you. They reached into their pocket again, gripping the carved figure inside as that sadistic silence stretched and scraped. When Joe couldn't take it anymore, they spat a question into the remnants of their chili. Well, anyone gonna say something? Unable to repress the smile blooming across her lips, Miriam replied, Father... Mother, the angel told me I'll give birth to the very Son of God. And it's true. I am with child. Anna reacted first, her face crumpling like the heap of linen in her lap. Who did this to you? Miriam, darling, did someone force himself? Mother, no. Miriam shook her head so vehemently, her ringlets shook against her cheeks. It wasn't like that, I promise. Is it? Is it Yosef's, then? Anna's eyes took on a hopeful gleam. Did the two of you sleep together already? You can tell us that would be all right. No. Mother, I told you. It was the Holy Spirit who came to me. No man at all. Miriam closed her eyes for a moment, collected her thoughts. I know that this is hard to understand. Why, I asked the angel myself, how can I bear a child without knowing a man? And the angel explained. She was cut off, not by a voice, but a thud. 
her father had slammed his fist down on the table. Miriam had never witnessed a violent action from her father, not once. He was a gentle, gentle man. She sank back into her seat as her mother pulled her hand away from hers. Miriam, how could you do this to me? To us? Miriam dared a glance at Joachim's face and saw it was not hardened with rage but melted into grief. His voice was something like keening as he moaned, Oh, my girl, my gift from God himself, why would you do this to your loving parents? Miriam stood, moved towards her father as he leaned into the wall as if drained of all spirit, but he held up a hand to hold her back. She stood helplessly, longing to reach for him, to support him, to help him to a chair, anything. But it was as if a chasm had opened up in the floor between them. Father, please believe me, there was no man. Then what makes you think there is a pregnancy? Anna's voice came from behind her, suddenly businesslike. She had stood up from her sewing, letting it fall to the floor to approach her daughter and press her hands to Miriam's stomach. I've had no monthly cycle, and, well, how did she explain that she simply felt what was growing inside her, had since the day of the spirit? She knew that was not how pregnancy worked, that the quickening did not come for several months, yet, though the presence inside her did not move, it could not be denied. A warmth glowed in her belly night and day like a flame that did not burn. My darling, darling girl, Joachim continued from his wall, you have never brought us heartache, not since the day God answered our prayers. Must all our joy be twisted into grief? Miriam couldn't think of a tactful way to say, This isn't about you, nor did she think her father expected an answer anyway. She kept silent. Does Yosef know? Anna asked cautiously, and that spark of hope had returned to her eyes, but it flickered out as soon as Miriam answered, Yes, mother, I told him last week. Oh, my silly, naive girl, she cried but there was no malice in it, only despair. She began to pace in the small space between her daughter and the bench. What did he say? He said he'll come talk to father soon, that he will end our contract, but seek no penalty or restitution. Anna threw up her hands. Well, I suppose we must thank him for his generosity, she exclaimed, sarcasm dripping. He could ruin us, but no, he's only sentencing you to a life of shame. It is generous of him, Joachim spoke up, addressing Anna instead of the wall at last. He could have our girl stoned, if he insisted. A good man, he added, and his voice grew distant again. A good, good man, he would have made a perfect son-in-law. Father, I do not need Yosef, Miriam insisted. Not that it hadn't been a dagger in her heart when he told her they were done, that he did not believe her story, that he would not help her raise this holy child. But in spite of that, she believed what she said next as firmly as she believed anything. Beloved father, I do not need even you or any man. God will let no harm come to me with this child in my womb. 
Silly girl, Anna cried again, and now she did seem angry. God does not work like that, and you know it. We raised you better. The way things are, we women need a man to protect us. And God knows your father and I both have only so many years left in this world. Joachim responded to that. Oh, God most high, what is to become of my daughter, my only child when I am dead and in my grave? Oh, and he began to wail. Miriam could take no more. To have her joy, her celebration, received as grief by the ones she loved most, it was too much. She fled her home, leaving the noise of her father's grief behind. The wind's bite felt like kindness on Joe's overheated cheeks as they hurried down the now-dark street, their suitcase wheels keeping rhythm with their pace. They passed the Rudyard's inflatable nativity with its pasty white Mary and Joseph beaming down at pink-cheeked baby Jesus. They passed the Long's unkempt yard, its dead leaves and toy guns. At last, there was Ellie's car, the trans flag-backed T4T, and vivid rainbow honk-if-you're-gay bumper stickers sticking out like sore thumbs in this prim, cis-hetero haven. Joe made for it like an oasis in the desert. In the driver's seat, which was tilted back as far as it could go, Ellie was completely zonked out. A little rivulet of drool meandered down her chin from her open mouth. Some of the roiling in Joe's gut calmed at the sight. They knocked gently at the window, and Ellie jolted awake, eyes snapping open and mouth snapping shut. Even through the closed window, Joe could read Ellie's lips saying, I'm up. Joe gave a little wave and pointed back towards the trunk. Ellie's fingers fumbled around on the dash for a moment, then the trunk popped open. Hey, baby. Ellie said after Joe had let themselves in the passenger side door and collapsed into the seat. Her voice had that gravelly timbre it always had just after waking up, but she was clearly trying to act like she wasn't groggy at all. How'd it go? She reached a hand over and rubbed Joe's shoulder. Joe leaned into the touch as they tried to decide how to answer. Their mom's voice, hurt and upset and increasingly frantic, blared unbidden through their mind. Did someone at school hurt you? Is it something we did? You were such a happy little girl. Why did you have to do this now? Couldn't you have kept it to yourself so we could enjoy Christmas together? Their father's face also flashed through their mind, and for a moment Joe thought they were going to be sick. He had just sat there eyes staring at nothing the whole time, as silent as the angel topping the tree a few feet behind him. Joe had anticipated most of their mom's comments, but Dad's utter silence? They had not expected it, and somehow it was worse than any words he could have flung at them. He hadn't even looked up when Joe finally pushed their chair back from the table and left. Can we talk about it later? they finally said, swiping a hand over their eyes. I just want to get out of here right now. Sure, love. They had one last destination before they could finally leave this god-awful suburb behind. 
Ellie already knew it, so she and Joe both stayed quiet for the ten or so minutes it took to get to Our Lady of the Wayside Catholic Church, Ellie's right hand gripping Joe's left the whole time. As Ellie pulled the keys from the ignition, Joe suddenly blurted, It just sucks. It sucks because, like, figuring out I'm queer, that I'm in love, that I'm the happiest I've been in my life, I wanted to share that with them, you know? But to them, it's the end of the damn world. Ellie reached across the console and pulled her partner as close as possible while in a car. I know, baby. I know, she murmured softly, stroking Joe's hair. Before Joe knew it, they were crying, then sobbing, right there in the parking lot of Joe's childhood church. Ellie let them cry, for Joe didn't even know how long, periodically murmuring little phrases like, That's right, just let it out. By the time Joe had wrung every last tear from their eyes, they had thoroughly soaked their girlfriend's shoulder. Sorry about that they said, voice a little stuffy. It's fine, babe. It's all fine. Ellie moved a strand of hair from Joe's wet eyes. You ready now? Yeah. Ellie grabbed her cane from the back seat before they started the trek across the parking lot. Joe took Ellie's free hand and let the rhythm of their girlfriend's mobility aid, its sturdy tap sounding forth with every other step, soothe them into a steadier state of mind. The straight white lines of empty parking spaces glowed faintly, and Joe imagined that, to the watchful gaze of the lampposts towering above, they and Ellie were glowing too. When they reached the several steps that led up to three sets of tall, arched doors, Joe said, wait here, before ascending them on their own. No use making Ellie climb stairs if she didn't have to. As Joe suspected, the doors all turned out to be Locked, locked, and locked. They hopped down to where their girlfriend waited. No worries, Joe said. The inside wasn't the main event anyway. Follow me. Ellie shrugged and followed after Joe, who led the way around the building till they came to a gap in the brick. A short corridor later, they came into a small courtyard swathed in shadow. The only light, a small ground spotlight and the sliver of moon waning crescent, Joe was pretty sure, that had reached its zenith as they drove. At the center of the courtyard's couple of benches and well-groomed shrubbery was a life-sized statue. The ground light tilted to peer up at the statue, its feeble gold beams splashing across the speckled gray stone. As Ellie sat down on one of the benches, Joe approached the stone figure, they paused to gaze up into its softly illuminated face, which bore simple features, lips that curved into a gentle smile, nose, hint of downturned eyes beneath their lids and brow. The artist had carved flowing robes across the shoulders, the outstretched arms, the belted waist, as well as a veil covering the head, all typical for a statue of the Mother of God. Joe settled themselves down at the statue's feet. They were aware of their girlfriend's eyes on them, and for a moment, anxiety rippled across their gut. Joe knew what she thought about the Catholic penchant for statues and icons and saints and crosses, but Joe let the feeling go. They reminded themselves that Ellie loved them, didn't judge them, respected that their ways of expressing faith differed. 
They returned their focus to the statue's face, now several feet above them. Hey, Ma, they said quietly. Just wanted to say goodbye to this particular statue of you. Wait, that's probably weird. Or like idolatry or something. It was this courtyard in general they had wanted to visit one last time. Back in middle and high school, Joe had poured out so much angst into this little corner of their home church's grounds, had murmured or shouted so many prayers in here that surely some ghost of them lingered among the shrubbery branches, in the stone folds of Mary's robes. Joe thought back to that afternoon from five years back, when they had fallen at the feet of this very statue and cried like a baby, finally admitting to themselves that they liked girls. The quiet gray stone had taken it all. The serene expression had not twisted in disgust. At that time, Joe still believed queerness was sin or sickness or something, but after that day, they at least knew it wasn't bad enough to cause the ground at Mary's feet to swallow them straight down into hell or for communion wafers to scorch their tongue. And then, just a year ago, the dream had come. Not here in this courtyard, but all the way over at their college church. Joe's lips turned up at the corners, and they absentmindedly fiddled with the zipper on their jacket pocket as they reminisced. They'd signed up for the 3 a.m. shift of adoration because, hey, they were hardly sleeping anyway back then, Plus, the idea of an hour alone with God without having to worry about anyone barging in was an appealing one. They could really use some guidance because, God, they were scared. They were petrified their life was spiraling out of control, leading them where God would not, could not follow. They had relieved the previous volunteer of their duty a few minutes before, right as the clock struck three, and the sanctuary was stiller than a tomb. From their kneeling position in a front-row pew, Joe gazed, mesmerized, at the monstrance glittering golden in the candlelight up on the altar. Inside the circle of glass at its heart, the round wafer that was, church teaching said, the body of Christ, sat pale and still. Eventually, Joe moved their eyes from that pale circle in its scintillating frame long enough to fish their rosary from their backpack. As they did, their fingers brushed against a folded piece of paper with a lipstick kiss stamped across its white surface. Ugh, don't think about that. Or maybe do? Bring it to God and ask for... for what? Forgiveness? Acceptance? Joe didn't know. They just did not know, and the uncertainty was ripping their spirit to shreds. Fingers trembling a little, they draped their rosary over one hand, held the first bead between two fingers of the other. They began to pray, murmuring the Apostles' Creed, and then the Our Father, and then the Hail Mary, again and again as their fingers moved from bead to bead. The repetition of the words they knew better than any others, accompanied by the quiet clinking of the beads, eventually lulled them into that blissful state where thoughts drifted away. There was only the bead between their fingertips, the prayer on their lips, the flickering of candles up ahead, and then there was Mary. 
she stood between Joe and the altar, in front of, but not blocking, the host behind her, and her brown skin glowed, not with the candlelight, but with an inward radiance. Look at you, my beautiful one. Her voice filled Joe's entire being up, warming them from the tips of their toes to the top of their head. Joe gaped up at her from their pew, for how long they couldn't say. Then abruptly, bashfulness enveloped them, and they looked downward, towards the string of beads now slack in their hands. My, my lady, they stuttered, unsure how to address this apparition. My child, Mary replied, and Joe's cheeks blushed hot as they felt a palm cup their chin and gently raise their face upward again. My child, enough of this fear and shame. Do you not know that divinity pulses through your cells as surely as it nestled in my womb? I... Joe had no idea what to say to that. They had longed for, begged for a sign like this, and now that it had come, they could barely believe it. Are you saying... are you saying I'm okay? Me and all this gender mess, and... and me and Ellie... They trailed off and could not help but look away again. Yes. The answer reverberated through Joe's bones. Yes. Yes. Forever yes. Joe dared to raise their gaze again, to lose themselves in the deep brown universe of Mary's eyes. My child, be bold. To face the world's disgrace is to follow in my footsteps. Then, before they could respond to that incredible statement, before they could break down in thanks and reverence, the four o'clock volunteer had shaken them awake, holding up the rosary that had tumbled to the floor when Joe slumped in their pew. Maybe it had been a dream, but at the same time, Joe knew it had been more than a dream, too. It had sewn their shredded spirit back together, emboldened them for what they had to do. Now, it was done. It had gone more or less how they had known it would, and God, it hurt. But now, here in this courtyard, they let relief wash over them. Everything was out in the open now. The ball was in their parents' court. They could puncture it if they wanted, even build a wall where now there was just a net. Joe had done their part and was free either way. They were whole, and they were loved either way. She hadn't gotten more than ten feet from her own front door before she heard her own name called, but while the voice was familiar, it belonged to neither of her parents. Yosef? The man approaching her seemed out of breath, and his hair was tousled as if from sleep. Maryam! I'm so glad to see you. I have come to inform my father of the divorce. I know. Miriam was rarely brusque with anyone, but seeing Yosef again after what just took place, it was too much. No, Miriam, no, I... Wait, forgive me. I know it isn't appropriate to speak here like this, but if you will have the grace to listen, I would beg your mercy. My... my mercy? Miriam's head felt light. I don't understand. You shared your situation with me, and 
I reacted hastily. Listen, I had this dream and, well, I can explain all that later. For now, Yosef paused. He ran a hand through his rumpled hair. Up to this point, he had kept his eyes downcast. Out of respect or disdain, Miriam had not been sure, but now he raised them and met hers. I would ask you to take me back, to be my wife and let me be your husband and be the father of this child of yours, if you would have me. Miriam's mouth opened. I have only one question. Anything. Do you believe me? Do you believe what I told you happened? Yosef's gaze did not waver. I do. Feels good to be on the road again, Ellie said as she pressed down on the gas and merged onto the interstate. I'm telling you, you're going to love my dads, and they're gonna love you. This is a spoiler, and I don't think I'm supposed to tell you, but they even bought some stockings for the fireplace, so they can give you a little taste of Christmas. Dang, that's... that's really sweet of them, Joe said, touched. They didn't have to do that just for me. Yeah, well, that's the kind of people they are, Ellie shrugged. Then she joked, I think your stocking has Santa or whatever on it, but mine has a dreidel, so no one will get any ideas about us being a Christian family now. I don't even know where they managed to find a Jewish stocking. The world truly is an astonishing place. Ellie's voice faded from Joe's hearing, not because she had stopped talking, but because Joe had just checked their phone, and the notifications brightening the screen seemed impossible. They expanded and filled Joe's entire brain, muffling all outside sound and scenery. Two missed calls. One voicemail. All from Dad. Hey, they finally managed to say, holding up one hand. Can you pause a minute? I gotta... Ellie quieted, and Joe clicked play on the voicemail. Hey, Jen. Shoot, I'm, I'm sorry. Joe? Honey. Hey. I'm so sorry about, well, about freezing up and just sitting there while your mom did all the talking. I was just shocked. No, that's not what I wanted to say. It's not like there weren't clues. No, wait, that's not it either. What I wanted to say was that I... I might not be 100% on board with everything you told us, but the thought of losing you... The voice broke, paused a long, long moment. Listen... Can we try again? Please don't leave town just yet. Maybe we can talk a little more. Call me back or, or text if you want. I know kids these days don't do phone calls. Or if you don't want to talk just yet, I, I get that too. Just, just know your daddy still loves you, no matter what. A click signaled the recording's end. Then there was silence, except for the muted sounds of tires on concrete and wind rushing by outside the car. Joe, Ellie finally said, was that your dad? They cleared their throat. Yeah, it was, they said. Hey, can we stop for the night? Instead of going straight to your house. On it, Ellie merged into the rightmost lane. I'll take the next exit. We can get a motel room. Ellie was good like that. God, Joe loved her. You are literally the best. I know. I love you so much. I know, Ellie said with a grin, keeping her eyes on the road.
and then they were both quiet again. With shaky fingers, Joe opened their texting app and started to type. Want to get breakfast at nine? I hop or something? The ellipses showing their dad was texting back popped up almost before Joe hit send. They waited. Yes. Thank you, Joe. He typed Joe, J-O. Joe's throat felt closed up once again, but weirdly in a good way. It's Joe with an E, they typed back. See you then. Joe. See you tomorrow. Pause, then another text. What's her name? Joe huffed. What? Ellie asked. He asked, what's her name? I assume he means you, but doesn't want to call you my girlfriend or something? Ellie snorted. <laughs> well, give it time. She glanced from the road ahead long enough to smile softly at her partner. Honestly, this is incredible, Joe. Yeah, I... He's even calling me Joe. I never thought that would happen. Not after the comments they'd heard their parents make when transgender stuff popped up in the news. Not after years of witnessing them nod along whenever gay people came up in Sunday homilies. Joe's hand wandered to their pocket, wrapped around the wood figure inside. They hesitated, then added, It feels like a miracle. You never know, Ellie replied. You do have that nice blue lady in the sky looking out for you, right? Joe punched their girlfriend's arm lightly. Shut up. Nah, Joe, I mean it, Ellie said, glancing Joe's way again to make sure they could tell she was serious. Look, I don't believe in her or whatever, but I do believe in you, babe. I believe you when you say that dream of yours had some kind of meaning. And I'm glad. I like thinking that God or some sort of supernatural entity is looking out for my lover in ways I can't. Warmth blossomed from somewhere in Joe's very core. Thanks, Elle. That means a lot. Ellie just smiled softly and the car got quiet again. Joe returned to their phone, texted back one last time. My girlfriend's name is Ellie and she's the best. Pause. Got it. Love you. Love you too, Daddy. Joe stared at the messages till their screen went dark. Then they looked up and out the windshield just as Ellie was turning into a motel. It was a dingy-looking place, and the O in the flickering pink neon sign was completely dark. But to Joe in that moment, it could have been a luxury resort. One hand squeezed the wooden figure of Mary in their pocket. The other reached for their girlfriend's right hand where it rested on the gear shift. Ellie turned to look at them, and her smile glowed brighter than the motel's neon. As they crossed their second parking lot of the evening, this one stippled with cars, Ellie threw her head back to admire the sky, stippled with stars that even all the light pollution could not blot out. Waxing Crescent, my favorite face, she said, pointing moonward with her chin, since one hand was occupied with her cane, the other with a duffel. One, I adore that you have a favorite moon face, Joe grinned. Two, I thought that was a waning crescent. Nah, the moon grows light from the right. It's definitely growing out of new right now, not into new. Joe studied the thin sliver of white bordering the right side of the black sphere, darker than the black surrounding it. Oh, thanks for the astronomy lesson, babe. They smiled up at it. You know... I think that's my favorite phase, too. Ellie gasped theatrically. <gasps> Stealing my favorite moon phase? Get your own. They were both giggling as they approached the check-in counter. 
While Ellie talked to the tired-looking employee behind the desk, Joe took a moment to savor their wonder at how a day they'd been dreaded for weeks, if not years, was ending with them joking and laughing with the girl they loved. You really do have something to do with this, don't you, Ma? They thought. I know how you love an upending of expectations. An hour later found them in a grubby motel bed, nestled together cozy as mice in a burrow. Joe snored softly, dreaming of rosaries beaded with full, bright moons, of angels with pink neon halos, of communion hosts honeyed with hope, as Ellie held them warm and safe in her arms.